0: Amen. Thank you so much, Jackie. We appreciate you. The new series is called The Emotionally Healthy Church. We've got a slide here to introduce this series that will be the next uh, 10 weeks, maybe more, depending on some of the topics we might spend two weeks on. And I have been planning this series for two years. It's been coming as part of our strategic plan we want to spend more time Sunday mornings dealing with the issues of the heart. And I have to tell you, at the beginning of this series, as we get started, I feel very much in over my head when it comes to preaching on emotional health and wellness. I am a highly, highly rational person, far more of a thinker than a feeler, much more of a Spock on the inside. You know, you know Spock? Does anybody know that? I can't can't quite do it. The world of the mind, that's my world. I would love to be announcing another apologetic series where we are going to, and that's coming this summer, where we learn to defend the faith with reason. That's my world, right? The world of emotions seems far too confusing and chaotic to me. So I often prefer to sit it out When emotional people are getting uh, emotional, God has done a tremendous work in my heart in ministry, because pastoral ministry is taking care of the flock of God. So God has truly transformed me uh, since I started ministry back in 2002. Emotional people have helped me to learn my way around that world, and I'm never going to be an all-star therapist, counselor, but God has truly taught me the ways of the heart. So I'm just being honest with you that going into this series to begin with is me saying I've got a lot to learn and a long way to go. And so some of you are like me. You wish you were more emotional. If you're not careful, you can turn into Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz, you know what I mean? Like you're just all rusted up and somebody's got to come along with some oil and uh, get you moving again and somehow try and find you a heart. Maybe you're like me. Others are highly emotional. And you're like, I just wish someone would put some brakes on my heart because I just can't stop the feelings. I feel all the feels and I'd love to know how to sort through them and be more productive and loving with them. And then most people are kind of somewhere uh, in the middle. I've read more books for this series than any other series I've ever preached. There are emotional experts out there, did you know that? There are people who live to study the emotional world. And I was surprised to find that they can't even agree on what an emotion is. They can't define them, and they can't tell you how many emotions they are. They argue over that. One expert in the emotional world, Brené Brown, not a Christian, but she is fascinating in the work she's done and the book she's written. She did a research project. And she collected 7,000 interviews over five years, asking people to list their emotions that they feel. On average, 7,000 surveys over five years, people listed just three emotions, happy, sad, and mad. She said, this survey isn't working. There are obviously a lot more emotions than that. So then she went to where people really share their feelings in the comments section of her online courses. And out of 500,000 comments, her team found 150 emotions listed. And so she narrowed it down to 87 of them and wrote a book about 87 emotions, and it became a number one New York Times bestseller. People are hungry to learn about the emotional world. They need help mapping it out, sorting through it, figuring out their way through it, which is why her book was called The Atlas of the Heart. For our series, we're going to focus on 10 of the top emotions mentioned in the Bible. Here's a slide with 10 of the top emotions mentioned in the Bible. So we'll do shame, pride, envy, fear, anger, sorrow, greed, boredom. That's also sloth. Uh, And then lust, joy. And then, so those are are 10 of the top emotions listed in the Bible. And then love will be the top one because the greatest is love. So that'll be probably 12 weeks that it will take us to go through the series. These are the emotions that drive most of our actions, and we are going to learn how to find these emotions, understand them, express them, and the series is called The Emotionally Healthy Church. We want to be a church that knows how to love each other uh, regardless of how we're feeling. So let's pray at the beginning of this series, and then we'll start today with shame. Shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bring our hearts to you as we start this new series. I know the purpose of everything, including our emotions, is to help us love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We know that's why we have feelings. That's why we have breath in our lungs, is to learn how to love you and to learn how to love others. So at the front end of this series, when we're going to go deep into the matters of the heart, Father, we invite you, as we look inside, to teach us to love you better, to know your love better, teach us to love others better, and to know their love better. Grow us as a healthy church, Lord. We open our hearts to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You could turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start this week and next week with one of the primary core emotions that drives our actions and our sense of identity and our relationships, and that is shame. When it comes to the idea of shame, it may be hard for you to locate when you feel shame and what you do with it, because shame is a socially triggered emotion, meaning other people are around when you battle most with this, so you're going to be inherently distracted while you're feeling it and while you're dealing with it. But what I want us to do today is to see the birth of shame, which happened in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to see exactly what it looks like, what it feels like, and in your soul, I want you to be asking, because this is a universal emotion, you have it, it's very powerful, and it's one of the biggest reasons you do what you do, you think what you think, and how you relate. It's there. Can you find it? Can you see how you feel it, and can you discern how it drives your actions, that's that's the goal for this morning. So here we are in Genesis 3. And remember, because this is a topical series, we're not studying this passage like we would in ABI, Anchor Bible Institute, right? This is a topical series. So in this passage, there's one particular theme, the theme of shame, and we are going to remain laser focused on that. So we're not going to go into a lot of offshoots that we could go into studying Genesis 3. So if you're looking at Genesis 3, one verse earlier is verse 25. God had just made a brand new universe. He made it, and it was very good. He made Adam, he made Eve, and it says in verse 25 of chapter 2, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Write this down, number one, in your notes. We were created to live before God and others innocent and unashamed. We were created to live before God and others innocent and unashamed. We are in the Garden of Eden. The whole world is brand new. There's never been any bad headline once. Nobody has hurt anybody else. None of the sins. None of them has even happened once. God made the universe, the world, and humanity good. And no one had ever felt shame before. So we see that we were created to live before God and others, innocent and unashamed. God made everything very good. There was one rule. So do you know what the one rule was? What was the one rule? Which tree? The tree of what? Knowledge. Now somebody said life. That's not it. The tree of... Somebody said knowledge. Knowledge of what? Good. So you've got to get the whole phrase right. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? One rule, consequence of eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is death. God warned them, when you eat of it, you shall die. It was a fatal restriction. Don't eat of the one tree. Plenty of food? The garden was massive. There was these four rivers converging. It was probably the size of a state park. Plenty of food. Have you been to Costco? Plenty of food. Okay. He gave Adam and Eve a choice to love and trust him or to willfully defy him and to willfully choose death over the tree of life that was at their disposal. They could eat of the tree of life and continue to live forever. It's important to recognize here that everything that was good came from the hand of God. They hadn't invented anything yet. And the pathway to eternal life, the tree of life, was outside of them. So humanity was not created immortal. We relied on the hand of God to provide life outside. And we don't believe the fruit, the substance, is what gave them the knowledge of tree and evil or gave them eternal life. It's God that did this. This was a path to faith, trusting him, and this was a path to sin, doubting him. Those are the things that led to life and death, right? That's what we believe here. So they had the opportunity to exercise faith, And by the hand of God to receive eternal life or to exercise sin and to choose death over life. Life and death are before them, a common theme that's going to happen throughout Scripture. He says it to Israel. He says it to us. Life and death. Choose life. Well, what would they do? Like Adam and Eve, we were made in God's image, created by a good God, and life and death lie before us. They were naked. They were unashamed. This means more than they just didn't have... Uh, and fish this means that they were clean of sin they had nothing to hide and no desire to hide no desire to cover up nothing to cover up imagine meeting a human who had never sinned once imagine the purity imagine the innocent look imagine the childlike delight imagine no regrets baggage past nothing imagine it's a staggering thought no baggage no bruises no secrets no stains They could talk to God every day and live forever. Wow. What a thought. Sometimes people accuse God going into this story. Well, what did he think was going to happen? Telling them not to eat from that tree. He knew they were going to do it. It's like putting cookies on the table and telling kids, don't eat it, and then going to wash your hair. Of course, they're going to eat it. They challenge God with wrongdoing. Uh, No, the tree is fatal, and God was good to warn them about it. It would actually be like telling someone who is deathly allergic to peanuts, order anything on the menu except the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It'll kill you. It's a very loving thing to warn someone that they're going to die. It'd be like going to Six Flags Great America and saying, hey, all the rides work, but the eagle is missing 15 feet of track. Don't go on it or you'll die. It's a loving thing to tell people you're going to die. If you go on that ride, don't go on it. It's a very loving thing to do that. So it was a good thing for God to warn them about sin. Yeah, but he put that tree there. People accuse God so naturally. It was a loving thing for God to give people a genuine choice to choose to refuse him. It's a loving thing to do. Forced love is not love a loving thing for him to give them the opportunity to literally choose death, to literally rather have a universe where he dies, which is ultimately what we want. It's a loving thing for a holy God to give people that choice, because then we know we can truly love him with our heart. So it was good for God to warn them. It was good for God to give them a choice. Glory, glory to God for such a perfect beginning in paradise. Amen. If you don't get the goodness of God on the front end of this conversation about shame, you're never going to be able to figure it out. You have to have it established in your heart that God is a good God. He's never done wrong to you one time, ever. You have to start where the Bible starts. We were created to live before God and others innocent and unashamed, and it happened already. But then we read on It says in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? All right, let's talk about this. So the snake is obviously Satan. He's a fallen angel, a demon who leads the whole world astray. I know some people think this is a myth. Genesis is a myth because there's talking snakes. But... What we have to understand is this. There are spiritual beings. There are angels and demons. There are spiritual beings. And it's rare, but they can control physical things. Like animals or even demons can control people. It's rare, but spiritual beings can control physical things. Therefore, this is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is a true story. Really happened. And Satan is a real being who has a personal vendetta against God. He wants to rule in God's place and ruin everything God has made. Satan is therefore the father of lies. You can write this down for number two. We're going to see that our shame comes from our sin. We feel shame because we are sinful. We feel shame because we're sinful. We'll unpack this. But for us, it's by birth and by choice. By birth and by choice. Sin will trigger shame. And we'll see for Adam and Eve, they were not sinful by birth they were sinful by choice, but then they will pass down this sin to us. So let's see where shame was first triggered. It says here in verse 1 Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, so Satan's first lie is uh, You can write this now. it's not on the screen, but there's three lies. God is awfully stingy. Your God is awfully stingy. It looks like you're starving. Did God really say, don't eat of any of these trees? Now, is that what he said? Is that what God said? No food. it has got a soup Nazi. No food for you. Remember Seinfeld? No food for you. Is he starving his children? So, Satan's tactic to begin with. Remember, Satan is going to ruin the world right here. He's not a dummy. He's not a dummy. Okay. He's the darkest creature imaginable. He knows exactly what he's doing. You you have to see how he gets us. You have to see it. And it's the same way he tried to get Jesus. What's the first temptation to Jesus? What do he say? Turn these stones into bread. You look hungry. Same strategy. You look hungry. You have to see what he does. God is awfully stingy. He's not feeding you very well, is he? So he'll exaggerate the limits put around you. Oh, you can't even have any fun. And he'll intensify your level of suffering. You look miserable. This is temptation. Watch out. Watch out. The ruin of the entire world starts here. You look hungry. The ruin of the entire world starts here. You look lonely. You look sad. You look scared. I can help you with that a very real basic need, you look angry. Satan starts with a basic desire, good things you need that God has told you you can have. This is what we would call bait. Bait. There's bait. There's something good that you need, and then there's a disguise. Who is it that's trying to offer it to you? If you don't get this about temptation, you're going to fall for it every time. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She adds a little provision there. Not even allowed to touch it. Maybe they were just taking extra precaution. She added to what God had said a little bit there too. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, there's a blatant lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So lie number two is God's warnings are not true for you. God said all these terrible things are going to happen. Not to you. So all these warnings are up there. He told you this is going to lead to pain. Not you. So God's warnings are not true for you. First lie, God's awfully stingy. Second lie, God's warnings are not true for you. You won't die. So he minimizes the consequences and makes your sin different. Well, yeah, other people have suffered for that, but this is different. You're special. And even, if he can convince you this, and you know what? This actually is probably God's way of blessing you. That is the coup de grace. Well, though, the Bible says this is wrong. Yeah, but not for you. But other people have really suffered, but yeah, but this is special. And maybe it's even from God. That's how he gets you he tells you his warnings are not true for you same temptation to jesus jump top of the temple Satan said jump jump he'll catch you now, that's a similar god's promises are not true for you right god said he'll command his angels concerning you jump same principle you won't die you won't die jump same principle he'll tell you that god's promises are not for you or god's warnings are not for you either way you're putting the word of god to the test you don't think the word of God is going to come true in your life. He's not going to come through for you, so you got to take matters in your own hands. Yeah, but He promised. Yeah, but not to me. Do you hear that in your head? Or yeah, I know what the Bible says, but for me it's different. So God's warnings are not true for you. Lie three. You can have it all without God. You will not surely die. Verse five. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So lie one, God's awfully stingy. Lie two, God's warnings are not true for you. Lie three, you can have it all without God. You're going to feel amazing. This is going to taste fantastic. You're going to be smarter than other people. You're going to be like heavenly. I I mean, I don't know why I haven't done it already. It feels really right and really good when you're finally at the point of taking the bait. People who are about to ruin their lives, ruin their marriages, ruin their careers have talked to me at advanced stage four cancerous sin like the best thing in the world is about to happen to them. And they were convinced. It's worse when they think God himself has brought this opportunity about. I'm like, your head's in the guillotine. No, it's not. This is going to crush your entire family. No, not me. They're, they're done. Their eyes are actually closed, but they think they now see clearly. You can have it all without God. So then it goes on to say this. Not exactly what Satan had said. He told some half-truths. Their eyes were open, but they see that they are naked. Now, that doesn't just mean physically. Like, oh my goodness, I'm not wearing pants. Uh, It's not just clothes that are missing. Their innocence is gone. They're guilty of sin. They're going to be seen. They're in huge trouble, and God said they would die for it. They are now seeing that they've done a very terrible thing. Spiritually, they did die. Their relationship with God was broken in that moment. They rejected their source of life. They chose death because it looked and tasted fantastic. And they transgressed the word of God. We were therefore born into their sin because we all came from them. And so we inherited a sin nature. The hard drive, when the screen was first turned on in your life, went blue. We were born broken. But then, once we got up and running, we chose sin too. So we're sinful by birth and we're sinful by choice. We download the program as well. That's the sin that triggers the shame. So the nature of sin is it stains like nothing else. That's why they instantly feel the need to cover up. There was a boy who moved here when he was a kid from um, Santa Fe. There's no humidity in Santa Fe. When he moved to Chicago as a boy on a hot summer day, he ran outside and he literally went like this. Ah! What is on me? He felt the humidity for the first time. Like, do you live in Chicago? I do. Do you know what that means? (laughs) He felt the wet heat on him, and he had never felt that before. And he goes, what is that? Now, that on your soul is shame. Sin stains, and it stains like nothing else. Worse than coffee, worse than dirt, worse than paint, worse than blood, worse than magic marker. Sin stains the soul, and you can't get it off. And because shame is a social emotion, you feel it when you go out. It's the eyes of others seeing the thing that you did wrong. That's when shame is triggered. God's eyes were coming. And that's why they felt naked. And they had to cover their guilt. And they felt shame because they were, it's going to be seen. It's going to be found out. So the feeling, and you have this right now in your life, and so do I. The feeling of needing to be cleansed of things that are bad and wrong in you is shame. The feeling of needing to be covered of the things others see in you that are shameful, that's shame. It's triggered when others are around, and you can locate the shame by seeing where you don't want people to see certain things. That's shame right there. Your your attempt to cover or cleanse over the ugly truth that's inside is shame. They are covering up because they are now naked. We see here that sin triggers shame. So number three, write this down. Shame drives us to run, hide, and fight the ugly truth. Shame drives us to run, hide, and fight the ugly truth. This is the title of the sermon, too. When we run, when we hide, when we fight the ugly truth, we are feeling shame. Everyone feels shame differently and everybody has different triggers, and everyone tries to get rid of it because nobody wants to feel exposed. Nobody wants people to see their flaws and their faults. So everyone copes with that in different ways. So just because you don't feel it like the person next to you or try and avoid it, it's still in there. And I wonder if you have woken up to how shame, which is one of the most powerful emotions in your soul right now, is affecting you. They ran from God, which is foolish and laughable, but we do it too. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So they ran, and then they hid. They covered themselves now all the way up. The fig leaves obviously didn't work. They still felt exposed and afraid, so they kept running, kept hiding. And the good God was pursuing them. Do you see that? a good God is pursuing them. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Questions. Where are you? Who told you? What did you do? Loving questions that bring the truth to light. Where are you? Who told you? What did you do? Where are you? Adam said, I was afraid. Naked. So I I hid. Remember, naked doesn't just mean I can't find my shorts. It means I was morally exposed and ashamed because I feel like I'm going to die. Okay, that's naked. I was morally exposed and ashamed, and I thought I was going to die. Who told you? I can imagine if Adam actually said it out loud, which he didn't do. Who told you? Well, a talking satanic snake told us not to trust you, so we ate from the delicious killer tree. And then we made clothes out of plants. Now that I'm saying it out loud, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And sin, sin does sound incredibly insane when you say it out loud. It makes a lot of sense up here. Once you start saying what happened, where were you? Who told you? These are the questions we ask our kids to, by the way. Where were you? Who told you to do that? What did you do? It sounds a lot crazier when you start saying it out loud. And so what does Adam do? I mean, the first man, husband on earth, of course he blames his wife. Are we surprised? (laughs) No, we're not. The man said, verse 12, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam blames Eve, of course. Blame the naked lady who just brought you food. And then he blames God, who you put here. Blame the God who gave you the naked lady who just brought you food. How crazy is this? That's called blaming. One impulse we have when our sin is exposed and we are feeling ashamed and the eyes of others are on things that are condemned is to point the finger. Nothing makes you feel better initially than making other people feel as bad as you do or worse. We blame. If you want to locate the power of shame in your life, who are you blaming for the things inside that you don't want people to see about you? Blame helps you and me locate shame. And then Eve, what does she say? She says, well, in verse 13, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's true. The serpent did deceive her and she did eat. And the Lord God talked to the serpent. What did you do? So it's a total disaster. And this is why you have every single problem you've ever had in life. Because the first humans who ever lived, believed the lie, fell into sin. It's a total disaster. It's a total disaster. A global catastrophe. Because they chose death rather than life. It's important to understand that, that somebody said this once, when God says don't, he is saying don't hurt yourself. If you want to locate the power of shame and what it has the hold that it has over you, look where you are covering up right now. Look where you're hiding things from the eyes of others. Look where you're blaming people, where you're willfully opposing God's commands, thinking they don't apply to you, where you're pursuing pleasure and happiness outside of the will of God. Where are you being tempted right now? And do you see how it's going to end? If going into it, you think it's going to be good, Life is going to be better. You will do it. If you tell yourself on the front end, I know with everything within me that that's what it seems like, but it's going to be worse, it's going to be less, it's going to be death, then you won't do it. Every sin starts with believing a lie about God. Where are you being tempted right now? What are you covering up? Do you see where it will lead? We've all given in to temptation. So let's talk about our past. There's a deeper power of shame because we've all blown it. So where, because of your past, do you feel flawed? Where, because of your failure, do you feel unsightly, dirty, bad, like a failure, ugly? Where are you trying to avoid people seeing that you have failed, that you are flawed? That's shame. What about yourself makes you want to disappear, crawl into a hole and never come out? It could be your past relationships, mistakes you've made there. It could be your foolish financial choices. It could be your lack of self-control physically. It could be big mistakes you've made or little mistakes each day that pile up. It could be external. You don't like the way you look when people see that. It could be internal. You don't like the way you feel. All of these can lead us to feel scrutinized by others and condemned. Like something is missing and we're not right. We don't want people to think we're bad, we're dumb, or gross. Often our shame can come from what others did to us. That's their sin that hurt us. And what they did or said makes us feel worthless, used, rejected, guilty, Can you locate the power that shame has in you from what others have done or said? Remember, shame is a social emotion, so it comes out and is caused in the crowd, which means it's hard to find and locate because you're distracted while it's happening. Do you see? And people try to cover up in different ways. Some people run, and they leave situations that make them feel exposed. Some people hide, and they have a variety of ways of disguising the truth. Some people fight, they flaunt. Talk more about that next week, but they, this is who I am. And they double down and they'll fight on that because they don't like to feel bad about who they are. Do you run? Do you hide? Do you fight? Can you locate the power sin has, shame has on you and in you? What makes you run, hide, and fight the ugly truth? And it is true about yourself. There can be things that are not true about yourself. That's called false guilt. Talk about that next week too. Maybe nobody knows what shame you carry. But when you feel fake, filthy, and forsaken, that's shame. It's a universal feeling. But I have good news for you when it comes to shame. Let's go on to the next point. Number four, only God can cleanse our sin and cover our shame forever. Reading on in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is symbolic of the curse on Satan and his fallen angels. This is very picturesque. That now the snake becomes emblematic of temptation, sneaky, slimy, coming up upon you, fangs, poison, death. That's now, think about this when you think about sin. And these demonic beings are now filled with dust. They are now empty of what truly fills them. They are now cursed to earth. We know that Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. They got more than they bargained for. And the war is not over, verse 15. Satan didn't win. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the first gospel because it promises enmity between uh, satanic beings and spiritual beings that will follow God. And there will be a remnant of people all throughout scripture who don't turn on God. They love him, they follow him, they trust him, they'll be saved, they'll go to heaven. So Satan now has a ongoing war on his hands and somehow, he had no clue how this was gonna happen, but a human would bruise his head how is a human foot going to do any damage to a power like him well the birth of our lord and savior jesus christ which is why he tried to kill jesus as soon as he was born he knew his doom was sure verse 16 to the woman he said i will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children you desire your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you so now there's a lot more pain in childbearing. You can thank Eve for that when you get to heaven. And also there's a lot more strife in the marriage, right? Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, he was supposed to be the spiritual leader, uh, passivity is not neutral, okay? He was guilty of sitting back, letting this all unfold. So because you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The work is now not a joy or a delight. It's a necessity. His life is now has to come from his work, and it's going to be toil and trouble. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now this is overall good news, because the ground was cursed, the snake was cursed, God did not curse them, And he did not kill them. He let them leave the garden. And that is a portrait of forgiveness and grace. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and, get this, clothed them. The Lord God clothed them. He covered their shame. That's not just physically, that's spiritually. Animals died. It's going to become a theme throughout Scripture This is the clothing of their sin and their shame. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Talking among the Godhead, the Trinity, and even the angels. Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This was a protection, too. God was preventing us from becoming permanently stuck in a state of evil like the fallen angels. This was a provision of the Lord. What do we see here? Only God can cleanse our sin and cover our shame forever. There are terrible consequences for sin. The whole world is now broken, including the created order. Satan didn't tell them about that, did he? Satan was brought low. His kingdom of darkness is more than he thought would happen. Earth is now his domain, dust his food. His place in heaven was lost. He didn't win. Ultimately, one seed would crush the head of Satan. This would be the seed of Abraham. This would be the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God was gracious to them. He let them leave Eden alive, but eternal life would have to come from another way. And the clothing, the covering, would just be temporary. Their shame and their sin would have to be covered internally somehow. So we see here the birth of shame. Sin triggers shame when others see we are guilty before God. Your shame is there for a purpose, to alert you for your need, to ask God to cleanse you and cover your deep within and forever. That's why your shame is there, to alert you to your spiritual need. My son had to have his appendix removed, emergency appendectomy, Friday night, all day long Friday. My my stomach hurts, feels like I'm being stabbed. He's supposed to go to winter camp. Finally, he's like, I need to go to the hospital. He never says that. 17 years old. went to the hospital. They rushed him in. They said, yep, this thing's about to burst. Thankfully, they got it out. No complications, but he was in total misery, and this thing was about to go, and once it burst then you've got a long road on your hands trying to clean up the infection so somebody once said this pain is to the body what shame is to the soul so when your shame is flaring up something's infected inside of you it's telling you you have to take action to deal with it or it's going to burst and get worse pain is to the body what shame is to the soul shame is universal to everyone in this room including myself so I told you I have good news for you this is the great news we see here according to how God treated them that every single thing that makes you feel weak wicked worthless every single thing that makes you feel that way that you want to just cover up forever God wants to cover it too Do you see that He doesn't want to expose you. He doesn't want to condemn you. He doesn't want to shame you. He doesn't want to push you into a hole and make you regret everything for eternity. God wants to cover it too. Just as God loved Adam and Eve, so he will love you if you confess your sins, tell the truth, and invite him to save you from your sins. You have been trying to run and hide and fight the ugly truth, and it hasn't worked. God wants to cover it over for good. If you have been saved by Jesus in the past, you still struggle with shame. You still try and run and hide and fight the ugly truth. He wants you to come back to him again so he can clothe you again, so he can cleanse you again. Not salvation, sanctification. So he can apply his love and his death on this part of your fear. This is great news. This is the gospel. So, I want to ask you, where are you? Where are you? This is what God asked them. Where are you? Are you far from God right now? Are you clothed in shame? Are you still trying to run, hide, and cover it on your own? Where where are you? Are you a born again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, or are you not? Are you still running and hiding from God, fully exposed to his judgment that's coming? Where are you? Are you a Christian who just has some things you're wrestling with and you've been trying to cover it far too long? When you try and cover over your own shame, when you try and do damage control, I I see it as like, because I feel this way too, like I'm holding up a piece of Swiss cheese trying to get you to not see things about me, right? Maybe if I hold it like this, then it'll go away. Are you trying to cover yourself? Is that where the shame is coming from? where are you? Who told you? What voice are you following? What led you to this sinful, shameful place? Where's the fuel coming? Who's telling you these things? Where are you? Who told you? Who told you? Who told you that? Who are you listening to that you need to stop listening to? Where did you get that? And what have you done? Clearly, specifically, no blaming. What did you do? This is the path to being covered. If you know where you are, and you know how you got there, and you know what you did, you can come before a holy God, and he will cover you, and he will wash you, and he will cleanse you, and he will accept you, and he will love you, and the shame will go away forever. The good news is Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, so we can know God personally again. And so when we know God again, we can come back to him to find forgiveness in our time of need. It says in Revelation 3, 17, for you say I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You're dealing with something that's true about yourself. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You are that. But it says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and listen, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This is an undoing of the very thing Satan did. Jesus will open your eyes to see the true life. Jesus will clothe you in white so people don't see your shame anymore. Jesus alone lived a sinless life. He can therefore stand before the Father and bring you to God. He died in your place on the cross. He was humiliated. He died naked and disgraced, not for his sin, for your sin, to take your shame on himself. He was thrown into the tomb and he rose on the third day. He now rules heaven in glory and he offers to cleanse you completely and cover you forever free of charge. You cannot do this yourself. Religion won't do it. Good works won't do it. Only if you are cleansed and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will you be radiant and white, unashamed with great joy in his presence. So where are you? I want to give you a chance right now to respond to this powerful message of shame that you've heard. We're going to pray in a moment. And some of you are not saved. And your shame is showing you your sin, and only Jesus can cover it. I want to give you the chance to pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. To ask him to cover over all of your sins once and for all. Sometimes people say, I've done too much, God would never forgive me. You're underestimating the power of the cross. God will forgive any sin any number of times, permanently and forever. Other times people think they're good without the blood of Christ. Well, I haven't been that bad. You're wrong. Your righteousness is filthy rags in God's sight. Now is the time to forsake your own righteousness, your own performance, and to say, I am filthy, blind, naked, wretched, and I need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me. You can ask for Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, and you can be covered in righteousness. If you are a Christian and you're battling shame, God is prompting you to confess your unconfessed sin. Where are you? Who told you? What have you done? It's time to get right with God again. It's time to tell him what you've done and to ask him to cleanse you again. You could also be carrying the burden of false guilt and shame. Thinks he's already taken care of, he's already covered, and you shouldn't be bringing those things back up. You need to drop it in his presence again. Those things are done. No matter where you are feeling guilty, insecure, afraid, or exposed, I want to invite you right now to let the love of Christ be what cleanses you. Then, when others look at you, they will see the love of Christ clothing you in white. I'm going to invite Jackie out here, and she's going to play some music here as we enter into our time of prayer. But we're going to set aside a few minutes here to give you a chance to truly pray to God about your shame that you feel. And sermons like this, it's appropriate to give people a chance to take that extra step of coming forward for a time of prayer. And this is your way of saying, this is really hitting me, and I really want to show God I'm responding. I think in a sermon on shame, it's particularly important to give you an opportunity to publicly respond, because shame is a socially publicly triggered feeling. In other words, for you to take that step of battling shame, you have to, before the eyes of others, show them that God is covering you. You want them to see Christ covering you. So, as we go into a time of prayer, I'm going to open up the front of the floor here. There's plenty of carpet, but however this sermon hit you, if you feel like God is impressing upon your heart, you need to respond to this. I want to cover you, I want to cleanse you. This is your chance to say, I'm going to go forward and pray. First of all, it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what other people think. Second, you want other people to see, God's covering me, God's clothing me, God's accepting me, God's receiving me. You want them to see that. So enough of the thoughts of others. This is for the eyes of God. We're going to have a few minutes here, and you can stand up, come forward, and you're just coming forward to pray. And after a few minutes where you have a time to pray, I'm going to pray over you. So right now, if you feel led, stand up, come forward, and pray before the Lord. And I'm going to be a good example. I'll be the first one to come forward. Let's take a time to pray right now in your seats, or you can come forward. Go ahead and pray to the Lord.